All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 176 for Crow 777 Radio. Jason Lingren is here with me today, and we're going to kind of cap off one last set of thoughts for the myth series that we did, which shows the foundation of so much. And we tried to point out why understanding myth and old Greek and Roman ideas was such an important part of what's called a classical education. It's a bit like being told Latin is a dead language when it's pretty clear Latin's been used every freaking day of every year that's ever gone by, if in no other way than to name everything in our world in a scientific manner. What we're going to cover today is the Olympics, and it's no different. Uh, has anyone ever really heard accounts of what the supposed original Olympics was supposed to be about? We'll cover that in hour one. But for those with an eye and an ear, in hour two, we will cover the 1936 and the 1972 Olympics. Hint, hint. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 176. Jason Lingren is with me. And today, the myth series we did was so popular. Uh, now that they're advertising for the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games, we figured we'd do a show on the Olympic Games. Um, I'll preface it all. You know how I feel about things. History is a lie agreed upon. So let's not even bother to split hairs about dates BC and all this other stuff and just use the acceptable history as a narrative to address things. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. All right. So I know you might have a couple things for the intro. Um, our friend over at Take Back Space uh, has now filmed a wave. Maybe it's unfortunate that got called the lunar wave. What we thought back then is not what we know now. Um, the wave's been filmed in front of Jupiter. As a matter of fact, I think Take Back Space shot a Jupiter wave as well, but he shot it in front of Saturn. So you can cruise over to take back space. It's a really pretty nice shot. And the cool thing about it is the gentleman that runs that channel is very competent with the telescope. Anyhow, what do you have, Jason? Super crisp wave, man. I just watched it a couple of times. Awesome. I've been waiting for Saturn, actually. It's nice when someone, I guess I don't want to say his name, I don't know if he does it on the air, but someone like that with some scope skill shoots something like that. Uh, always good. All right, so we have the Shoot the Moon NYC event coming up on October 20th. Tickets are $30 at eventbrite.com. It is going to be with John Brisson, Wayne McCroy, Mark Devlin, a showing of Shoot the Moon. I am going to be there, and there's a very good chance that you are going to be there. Worst case scenario is we Skype you in so that you can communicate with everyone as well. Right. I'm hoping I can pull it off. We'll just have to see when we get a little bit closer. You got anything else? I am going to be giving a presentation at the Flat Earth 2019 conference. That's flatearthconference.com is the website. That is November 15th and 16th in Dallas, Texas. And mine is at 1.30 p.m. for an hour. I'm doing a presentation on the social engineering of our worldview. So hopefully everyone will enjoy that. Speaking of which, as we get into uh, the Olympics here and we begin to break it down, uh, we've been forced to push um, a large portion of this into the second hour. We'll be dealing with numbers, dates, all kinds of stuff. And for those people with half an eye to see with, one of the topics that will come up in that portion will be the 1972 hint, hint, hint games. Anyhow, let's jump in, Jason. All right, the mythological stories on the origins of the Olympic Games. One legend states that the games were established by Heracles, or Hercules, who brought a sacred olive tree to Olympia. Another myth has the hero Pelops, from which the name of the Peloponnese region of Greece originates, establishing the festival after defeating King Anomaeus in a chariot race. Regardless of how it all actually began, the games became a central aspect of Greek culture and in many ways were the most important aspect in uniting the ancient Greeks, with the exception of their language and mythologies. Okay, a couple things. If I'm not mistaken, um, it kind of bothers me. We call them the ancient Greeks. Greece wasn't even a country till something like the 1800s. I've forgotten the exact date. But you would think since classics were taught, and when we did the myth series, we pointed out that everybody back in the day was taught the supposed classics, that we would have a better solid idea of the Olympics, but there are differing versions. 
Um, is it named after the Peloponnesian re you know, region or something else? But here again, it all ties to the sky clock. Whenever you see Heracles or Hercules, we've broken this down many, many times. Um, it's relating to the sun in the acceptable year of the Lord in many of its usages. Things like the 12 labors of Hercules. We've pointed out the statuary in the Vatican, where he's kind of hidden, but you can still see that it's Hercules. And just as a clue for people, you can always identify Hercules. He'll be holding a club and wearing wearing the Cleonian lion skin. Um, you can even do a lookup if you'd like to know enough to be able to recognize that in code when it comes along. And by the way, not too, too long ago, the idea of Hercules um, being used in, in the context to communicate something was quite common. The original Olympic Games were one of two central rituals held in ancient Greece. The other ritual was a much older religious festival called the Eleusinian Mysteries that we mentioned in our Myths episode. The games first started in Olympia, Greece, and are said to have taken place in 776 BC. The location was a sanctuary site for Greek deities that was near the towns of Elis and Pisa on the peninsula of Peloponnese. The sanctuary of Zeus in Olympia housed a 43-foot-high statue made with ivory and gold of the supreme deity Zeus. It had been sculpted by Phidias around 445 BC and was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Originally, it was a one-day event taken up with a heat for a running race. It was a sprint of the length of the stadium, said to be the equivalent of approximately 200 meters. More events would be added by the 7th century BC. You know, you always got to wonder things like the, the seven wonders of the world, um, how much accuracy, you know, like the Statue of Rhodes. Do those things really exist? Um, these are tough things to know, or did they exist at the level we're told? But one of the things we'll be doing is showing why the dates are interesting. Um, the start here, 77 BC, will be one of the things that we relate, and we will also be doing the year-time differentials between events, uh, which ends up being very telling. The Olympic Games bind together the widespread and frequently quarreling Greek communities. When the time comes for the Games, however, a truce was automatically imposed on any warfare in Greece or any of its colonies so that athletes could travel safely to Olympia. The recorded list of winners included contestants from Sicily and southern Italy, from the coastal areas of Turkey and the Aegean Islands, and the whole of mainland Greece. The fame of a Greek athlete would spread through the entire Greek world. So this is irony at its highest. So basically, we're just covering what the acceptable supposed history of some supposed time BC, when this all used to be a thing, when it first came to be. But then the Olympics come back around in the modern era in 1896, I think. We'll correct that if I'm wrong later. And all these reasons are given, and they're very interested in all these old ideas. But here's the rub. So we're told in the old account, in the historical old account, that if the games were coming and there was a war, everyone stopped fighting. Well, in the modern era, since the, the modern Olympics started in the late 1800s, the only times it's ever been canceled, to my knowledge, was due to war. So they're not even following the spirit of uh, the supposed narrative of the historical value of these games to bring people together. That's right. They took place in 1936 in Berlin after uh, Hitler took power and was basically at his height then. And then the next couple were suspended because of the entirety of World War II, because the next one, the 1940, was supposed to take place in Japan, but they were a little busy doing other stupid things. Well, like it goes to show you, um, and well, I'll just say this, two of the very interesting Olympics we will address in hour two are the Berlin and the Munich Olympics. People can put that together on their own. Such is the importance of the games that events would come to be dated in Greek chronology beginning in the Hellenistic period according to the Olympiad, which is the period of four years between the games in which they fall. So this tells you kind of how important uh, the, the idea of the Olympics and the, the guys in the late 1800s, which we'll cover the guys that decide to put it together, and the IOC, which it controls it, which is run out of Switzerland. Um, this happens pretty much worldwide, or most of the world is, is affected every four years. So think about the commitment um, that we're talking about here. Uh, it's a big deal to, to some people in this world, and it is a very controlled thing, which you will understand as we get into the IOC. 
Athletes competed in the games as individuals and not as members of a national or city-state team. The games were thought to be quite brutal by today's standards. There is historical evidence to suggest that the highly individualistic and heroic ethos of Greek culture encouraged a considerable amount of the participants to cheat. Those competitors or event officials who were caught cheating or accepting bribes were heavily fined, with the money collected being used to build statues of Zeus that were called the Zanes. Eventually, a row of 16 of them had been constructed. At first, most competitors were drawn from the wealthy aristocratic class of the ancient Greeks, since all of the time that was required for training kept them out of being able to have an everyday work situation. As time went on, the Olympics became less exclusive, and poorer athletes were able to find sponsorship, enabling them also to compete. Well, it's funny that they mentioned the supposed cheating. Um, I, I tried to do a lookup. There was uh, a big to-do in one of the modern Olympics where it was claimed, and I forget where it was, somewhere in Europe, that there were men being passed off as women or something like that. Did, I mean, did you try to look that up, Jason? I couldn't find almost anything on it. I did not see anything on that, but we know a lot of craziness like that's going on these days. Yeah, we, we do, the, the gender confusion agenda, but I, I forget what it was that men actually taking estrogen or something that appeared to be women or men that looked like, or, you know, just very manly women and they got caught or something like that, but it's difficult to find that information. And lastly, I'll mention what's interesting about almost every comment regarding Zeus uh, as we were doing the Olympic lookups and the research is almost every number associated with re reduces to seven. You know, I strongly suspect that the Olympics being what they are, might not be so forgiving with those kinds of shenanigans with the whole gender thing. You know, you got to wonder, you know, they started doing the whole, you know, taking doping drugs and uh, human growth hormones and, and all that. Matter of fact, there's been countries that have been removed from the games. And we know that that went supposedly into the biking, the, the Tour de France. But it seems to me a lot of that was probably nonsense news. Well, it's just that with the competitions being what they are, I doubt they're going to allow a male who's now identifying as female just blasting through everything in the events as a female. Well, it's not like we don't have a basis to consider this. Bruce Jenner was a big damn deal in the 70s, uh, quite an Olympian, and he has changed gender publicly. Um, and that's a whole story on its own. He marries into the Kardashian, the original Kardashian father was O.J. Simpson's attorney. So, I mean, it never ends, man. Let me go around in circles. Oh, and then we have one of the most popular reality shows ever involving all of them. So, yeah, they want that in your face, don't they? Well, it's, a, it's just, you know, most people are not old enough to remember what a big deal Bruce Jenner was. There's two people back in the day um, that kind of dominated for their Olympic involvement. And one of them was Mark Spitz, Uh, who won a ton of swimming medals, Master of the Sea, hint, hint, hint. And the other one was Bruce Jenner. And shoot, I just did look. It was the triathlon or the deck. I'd, I'd have to go back and look. But so here we have this male athlete um, who wins gold medals, and he becomes a woman later in public on TV. I remember him being on the box of Wheaties way back when. They, exactly. Not only that, they used to have like these these cheesy shows, Battle of the Network Stars and stuff like that. And he used to show up on things like that. But, you know, those, those days are long gone. Uh, that's an odd duck, to say the least. The Olympic Games would last a full five days by the time of the 5th century B.C. Events would include running, jumping and throwing, as well as boxing, wrestling, pancreation and chariot racing. Pancration, by the way, is an event that we would never see the likes of today. It literally means all force and is a combination of wrestling and boxing. It was a very dangerous sport and everything was permitted except biting, gouging, meaning stabbing with your finger in your opponent's eyes, nose or mouth and attacking the genitals. At least 40,000 spectators would have packed the stadium each day at the height of the game's popularity, which was in the 2nd century AD, and many more people would be selling wares outside. You know, it almost sounds like mixed martial arts is trying to tap into that again. Uh, so maybe it was a similar thing that we just have more rules. You can't kill the guy now. That's exactly what I thought of when I read that, because I didn't know what pancreation was either. 
Well, I'll tell you what, when mixed martial arts first started coming out, it was like, damn, um, you know, it's just kind of takes you by surprise. You're used to boxing and all of a sudden these dudes are just doing it and you're all like, holy smokes. Oh, it's pretty brutal. Again, you're not allowed to do the, the kind of dirty tactics, but any otherwise, you really just have two people beating the hell out of each other. Well, early on in mixed martial arts, um, if you go back to the old uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, clips and stuff like that, it's pretty damn brutal. You know, I keep seeing that being a really big thing now. Lots of people getting involved with it. Is there something special about that that I'm unaware of? I took Goshen Jitsu way back when in the dark depths of time, but I'm just not that familiar with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and it seems to be a big thing now. There is, and I, I hope if people are into this sport, I apologize if I mess this up. I didn't realize we are going to talk about it, but I mean, I, I think the name is Gracie. There were Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu masters. I think their name was Gracie, and... One of the Gracies won everything all the time, even when the odds, I think there's clips of this up on YouTube, even when the odds were stacked so heavily against him, even I think if I remember correctly, and I hope I'm not getting this wrong, um, where he's not just mismatched, but by way more people than he should be taking on, and he just kept winning, uh, and he made a name for the Gracie family, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's what put Brazilian jiu-jitsu on the map, and it wasn't just because it was popular, it was because someone proved it was bar none top of the prowess at the time. Hmm. Oh, very interesting. By the time of what is called classical Greek culture in the 5th and 4th centuries BC, the games were restricted to male participants and spectators. It is thought that the contestants competed in the nude. There were loopholes that allowed some women to participate, however— Chariot owners and not the riders were declared the Olympic champions, and anyone could actually own a chariot. Given this, Kiniska, who was the daughter of a Spartan king, took advantage of this interesting situation, and she claimed victory wreaths in both 396 BC and 392 BC. Champions received a simple token of their victory, a garland of fresh olive to wear on their head. Sounds a little bit like the modern Olympics, insider baseball, huh? Yeah. Well, she would have had money, I can only assume, so... It's, you know, these old historical accounts, you know, we use them as a basis to talk about what the world accepts as correct, but, I mean, come on, if you take time, you can poke holes in most of this stuff. The pentathlon was the event from which the modern Olympics derives many of its events, including the discus, javelin, long jump, running, and wrestling. Aristotle said of it, a body capable of enduring all efforts, either of the race course or of bodily strength. This is why the athletes in the pentathlon are most beautiful. <laughs> Not sure what Aristotle's getting at there. He seems to be quite uh, enamored. But, um, you know, there's, there's a thing in my lifetime that's really changed about the Olympics. Back in the 70s when the, the Spitz and the Jenner and, you know, Olga Corbett and all these other things were going on, um, it was a big deal in this country. Everyone was into it. But I don't know, Jason, I, I didn't do a lookup on this. It doesn't seem like as many people are interested in it anymore. In the last Olympics, uh, where was it again? I think the last one was Pyeongchang. Um, and one of the things, before I get to the main point here, um, for, for one of the first times, so much technology was on display. But the one before for that, uh, Rio de Janeiro, um, it was terrible to watch on TV. And I got the sense that they were not filling the stadiums, that not a lot of people were following. But one of the things that was really bothersome about that particular Olympics was the colors. Um, it was enough to give you a headache. While I was looking up all the stuff on the ancient Olympics, the one thing I noticed was lots of art. You were mentioning about Aristotle having a fascination. It seems to be just a thing that they had, that there was much respect for the human form and that they were in such prime physical condition and there was much respect given. That's the impression I got from all the artwork and all of that. Part of what you're hinting at is why uh, this supposed period of history is so interesting, um, because truly uh, we're told people couldn't paint well, uh, in realistic, you know, till near the Renaissance or something like this. But supposedly in this much further back time, there's all these statues of a level of artistic endeavor that you wonder if there's anyone in the world right now that could even pull that off to the point where 
what we are told is ancient Rome, they were not making basically new art for the most part. They were replicating those old classics. You can always look at the three fates, which might be painted, and they might swap out a face or something, but basically the same form, same pose. So it seems that the art, which was at a level, I don't think it's ever been touched since, I could be wrong, um, for some of those statues uh, is incredible, but it's not really the artist it seems that's getting the credit for that. It's the idea of the art itself. And by the time we get up to the Renaissance, that begins to change when artists become famous. But my point is, here's this time way back in some supposed unknowable era that we don't know much about. And the apex of creating marble statues is coming out to the point where this other supposed place, ancient Rome, just sets about replicating it all the time. Uh, it's a very strange thing. So as time went on, the Olympics expanded from one day all the way up to five days. And here's the breakdown of how things went back then. And this isn't exactly how things are done today, which, of course, there's a lot more pomp and circumstance. But, of course, these were incredibly important to the Greeks. Well, I would, I would ask, is, 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 all, is a lot of this going on just in an encoded way? I would ask, but go ahead. Day one. Sacrifices are made to Zeus and other gods. The competing athletes and the judges swear an oath to play fair. There is much general festivity. One thing we should note is before we went on, uh, the numbers breakdown that we'll do in hour two, the, the number five kept coming up over and over and over. Jason, of course, pointed out the five Olympic rings, um, but just keep an eye on that. Day two, chariot racing, horse racing, and the pentathlon. Now, the one thing about these, compared to how things would be today, they weren't necessarily safe. The things that would go on in the racing, there would be obstacles in your way, and some of them would be potentially very threatening to your health, I guess we could say. You know, movies don't show us much, but anyone who's seen Ben-Hur has seen the chariot race. I believe a person was killed filming that, um, and that's just for a film, and you can tell how incredibly dangerous that would be. Day three would be boys' events. Day four, the climax of the men's athletics. The classic field events, along with pancration, and the day ending with races in armor. This, of course, would be athleticism in relation to warfare, which a lot of the events actually simulated. Well, you've got to imagine people were probably much tougher back in the day. Um, it's interesting that if it's true, that truly if there was conflict going on, everyone set it aside to do this. That's kind of a big deal if it was accurate. But it does, from everything I read, it seems like the supposed older time, that's what it was about. Um, bringing boys up to men, seeing who was the toughest and that kind of thing. And that's actually the whole point of the boys' events, too. It's preparing them for what could be coming for them later in life. And the events relating to warfare, it basically would be the fact that you had to be in shape enough to wear the armor and could you do these events? Because when you're in a real battle, you would, of course, be doing fantastic feats of athleticism. Well, it would be awesome to know if any of this is accurate. Um, but my main point here is the real reason that we're going through the supposed ancient version of this is because people have probably never taken the time to understand what history tells us went on back then. And then when you actually know what history is claiming happened and you see the modern Olympics, you'll see a lot of parallels. So they did sack. Well, go ahead, finish off with five. Day five would be sacrifices made once again. By evening, there is a banquet for the victors, with further celebrations being made when the victors would return to their respective hometowns. These, of course, would be the rock stars of the day and the celebrity-type sports people we have today. But it was written all over the place in the literature I found that it was a big deal. These people were highly, highly respected all over the entirety of the Greek nations. Well, it just wasn't a big deal to them. Someone in the 1800s decided it was still a big deal and got most of the world to buy into it over time. But history is telling us day one and day five, both about opening and closing sacrifices. Do we see any allegory, uh, any one-to-one -one match in the modern Olympics? Pay attention. Uh, 2020 is coming. The success of the Olympic Games prompts the founding of several other similar events. By the 5th century BC, there are the Pythian Games every four years at Delphi, the Isthmian Games every two years near Corinth, and the Nemean Games every two years as well. All of these events are purely for the sake of honor. 
All four events are known collectively as the Panhellenic Games. If it's true, it was a big deal, and it was a big deal to a lot of different populations around for them to all come in. Um, but you're naming some places like Delphi uh, that show up over and over again in history. Um, but think about that, uh, that down to every two years. Think about that commitment. We do it every four. Well, again, apparently all of this wrapped around honoring the gods. Each of these different events were in respect to a different god. The main Olympics were to Zeus. And that was just a very big deal when we're talking about these people from however long ago. And of course, you got to wonder, when did these events really take place? If there's any validity to history being truncated or just off in some way, that would put these events a lot closer to now. And I got to wonder how much that shows that culture was or was not different whenever this actually took place compared to now and how things would have changed more rapidly than we think. Well, I think there's a good chance that things are much, much closer to us. I agree with you. Uh, I think it's all much closer. And the work that we've done, the episodes like the Fomenko and other things, I think there's real evidence to support that. And not just that, but the Fomenko work shows that they were replicating uh, the same story over and over and over. Um, and that's why when we look back at these supposed old accounts, we have to question what's really going on here. But the point I would make is it's not hard to understand it was probably a big deal. Uh, after all, it's a big deal now. I don't know. You know, I keep seeing people really going at this notion of truncated time and the Tartarian Empire, whatever exactly right. that is supposed to be. And they're always mentioning the Fomenko work as an example to be used of time being off, history being off. So maybe we should take a look at that because a lot of people have asked us about it and I don't know exactly how an empire could have stretched as far as is being claimed and then completely taken out of existence, especially since they're saying that it took place in the 1800s, as far as recently as the 1800s. I would think that there would be the same thing that I've mentioned about the mud flood, newspaper articles, people writing about things if this was really going on. So there's a lot of things that I have questions about, but the concept is very interesting. And if there's any validity to Fomenko's work, and he's using astronomical events to demonstrate where things shouldn't apparently are not in the established timeline, there might be some validity to this. You know, if nothing else, Fomenko, from my perspective, I accept he's proven um, that everything we know is wrong. If you just want to accept dates at face value, um, what he did is I don't really think it's arguable. And he did use astronomical observations and other things. Um, the Tartarian thing, yeah, I would like to take a look. The reason I haven't chosen to tackle it is because that takes a little bit of effort and time. And to get that much research into a single week uh, isn't easy. Um, I've said before, I don't accept the mud flood uh, as it's currently described. And people get upset about that, but I'm sorry. Um, that's my point of view. The other thing I think is an interesting idea, and nothing would surprise me. I think it's pretty clear that there are massive rewrites and gaps in what we think we know. It was just a, a show or two ago we were pointing out that the CRT monitor was invented in the mid-1800s. Um, doesn't it seem like there's a story missing on, on the front of that information? Yeah, that's very interesting. By the way, I did a five-hour live stream with the cats from Iron Realm Media the other night. <laughs> those, those guys go, man. Well, I wasn't intending to go that long. I was going on to promote the uh, New York City event because Billy Ray Valentine was having trouble getting on to get the live stream thing working on his phone, and he ended up popping in much later. But one of the things we ended up talking about was this whole mud flood slash all of that. And one of the things they did was pull up a, a town in England that one of the gentlemen was familiar with. And being the way I am, I said, okay, I do see how the windows are sunk down. Yep. But the very first thing you have to take into account is the fact that I see concrete. And we don't know how many inches, probably minimally six inches worth of more modern concrete and all that being laid down that would eat up some of that. But that doesn't account for an entire window and things like that. So I know I'm right about that because it's blatantly obvious that there's a cement sidewalk that wouldn't have been there a century ago, that kind of thing. Well, there, you know, we all know that things get built on top of things. The Catholic Church is famous for coming into places that were considered holy and putting a church up on top of it. Um, the whole idea of archaeology, what do you do? You dig down through layers, right? You're going back in time. So we know this goes on. Uh, I think the evidence that people see like that where, where the windows 
appear to have been sunken down. There's something to that. Uh, I don't accept that it's a worldwide mud flood event, but um, there's enough evidence to show it over and over. Not only that, when we, you know, we did, I think it was a week or two before Notre Dame Cathedral was burned, um, we did the the episode on the cathedrals, and I went back and got some very old accounts of that uh, to figure out what had changed, and that's another good example. There were supposedly, uh, from the accounts that I read, 11 steps going up to the cathedral that we no longer see. They're underground. And I started actually thinking about that at the time and trying to do the math to try to work out how quickly did 11 steps go away. Uh, maybe maybe coming up with the idea it's 10 or 11 feet or something close to that, not knowing the distance of the steps. And we see this over and over and over, but there are plenty of places in the world where we don't see evidence. I'm, I'm in one of these places. Supposedly, by the history we're given, people came over on the Mayflower and walked to where I am. Um, so that's one of the older things for modern civilization in the United States. And there's tons of buildings uh, where you can't detect any of the things we're talking about that have supposedly been here as long as civilization, modern civilization has been here. Right. The correct answer is probably that it's somewhere in between. There were some events that we're unaware of, but it wasn't a complete worldwide calamity as some folks are making it out to be. Then again, what do we know? We really don't know. Yeah. No, nothing would surprise me. Anything before the 1800s starts really getting called into question. I think that's probably the safest bet. And I still highly suspect the Jesuits are the ones in the around the 1600s or so that started playing around with whatever real history is. Well, there's no doubt. Uh, the power of the Catholic Church uh, was in control of so much spiritual concern, so much education, so much of the history writing, so much of, of everything for quite a period of time. And even if, you know, why I keep saying nothing would surprise me is every time I go back to look at the 1800s, the one thing that just sticks out more than anything else is how much more ability those human beings had. And it was across the board. The, the things they were making were grand and well-crafted. And at a level we don't see anymore, people were speaking multiple languages. They'd all had classic educations. You read the things they're writing, and they're using language on a much higher level than we are now. And that's not a long period of time to end up you know, where we are now, so lowered. So none of it would surprise me. And the truth is, until we have enough time to look at it, I don't think we're going to be able to say anything that matters. Right. Now, the aristocracy, or even just wealthier people, would be raised on a classical education, as we've discussed before. But even the less wealthy folks, as we demonstrated, had to know certain things that today you just wouldn't do. We pulled up that example of the eighth grade test from the late 1800s, early 1900s, and the concepts that had to be understood to be used in practicality, day-to-day -day life, you just wouldn't do that today. This stuff matters, Jason, because even to this day, metaphor and simile and innuendo and encoding reference those classic ideas. It's why the Greek myth episodes we did is important. It's why this one is important. I'm guessing next to nobody has probably taken the time to look up the supposed historical accounts of what went on in the supposed original Olympic Games. But once you know all these things, the next time real modern Olympic Games come around, you start to see all these things, and then you understand understand, well, why the hell does anyone take in the effort to do this every four years and, you know, encoding or, or, or echoing back to these things? Um, it matters. And until you start to give yourself a so-called classic education, you would miss this all. If someone says something about it, you know, as an example, that was a Herculean task. Most people understand what that means, but that's the most obvious example. There are so many other examples that go on in a day that people don't catch because they're just not aware of the, the Greek myth, the Roman myth, um, what's behind the Olympics, these ideas. And by the way, earlier we were talking about sacrifices. From my point of view, I don't accept that the, they were viewing the so-called Olympic gods as deities. I just don't. I've done a lot of research now, and for me, I accept that what they were doing was recognizing aspects of the natural world. And when you come along and you can show over and over again things like Hercules encoding the position of the sun in each of the 12 months, you begin to understand that. You know, it's it's why people who took a, a college Greek course came in and said, you're crazy. You can't associate nature with this. And I'm sorry, you can all day long. As a matter of fact, it seems to be the basis that made all this happen. You're referring to the two different doctoral professors who commented on YouTube 
And I'm surprised they even clicked on something that we would release in the first place if they're that close-minded, but it is what it is. Well, I, I mean, I get it. So you spend all this time to get an education and you're very invested in it. But the point is, that doesn't mean independent thought goes out the window. Grab a book like The Devil's Pulpit or something like that. That's written in the 1800s. And that's a guy who's basically at a PhD level. He's trained by the Vatican up into the seminary. Uh, he's an astronomer. He's a surgeon. He speaks multiple languages and he gets his hands on one of the two highest Masonic texts available, and he does the corollary all day long, showing you that it is all encoding the acceptable year of the Lord. And I even went back and did the the footwork, which is not easy, because he's saying this star rises on this day. I went back and double-checked it all, and it's spot on, all of it, spot on. We may have to do a show just on the devil's pulpit one of these days. We should. We kind of have taken pieces and parts of it. Um, And there's an interesting thing about that book. I have yet to find a copy. It almost looks like a crappy photocopy, the versions that I've been able to get. Um, It almost seems like they're printing it, so it's difficult to deal with. And by the way, the language, there's a language gap there because he's using, you know, like we would say bats in the belfry now. Well, most people now know what that means, but maybe if we went back 100 years and said that, they'd say, what are you talking about? Things like that are going on uh, in the text. But, uh, you know, that's that's one of the books I'd throw into every high school. People should be aware of these things. Um, They don't have to agree with it. They don't have to accept it. But the information is important and valid. Gradually, professionalism enters the games, leading to valuable prizes and accusations of corruption. Boy, doesn't that sound like today. (laughs) Sounds like Utah, right, Mitt Romney? (laughs) (laughs) Under the Roman rule, the games become open to foreigners. The Emperor Nero, said to not miss a chance to show off, even competes in the first century AD. So let's get this straight. The most brilliant people that ever lived were the Greeks. The Romans took them over, um, turned them into slaves. They became the teachers for everything. But all the arts the Roman ever created are basically Greek replicas. <laughs> and, of course, they, they did the Olympic Games. Um, <laughs> what's wrong with this narrative? You know, it's amusing because it seems like even back then, however far back then really is, people were still addicted to celebrity and the concept of becoming extremely popular. Well, but that's the thing I was addressing earlier. Um, You have these very old best statues and artworks you're probably ever going to see in your life with very few exceptions. And it's really not for the most part about the artist. It's for the metaphor, the the allegory, the, the, the teaching device that has been put into this mythical figure. And everybody knows what it is. Everybody understands when they see that image, what's being communicated. So important that when we get up into supposed Roman times, they're just replicating the same things over and over and over. Um, So there's a stark departure from where we are now. Um, The idea that the artist becomes famous and what his art is doing is secondary at best. The games went into decline as the years went by, but were thought to have continued past 385 A.D., with the last records being from 393 A.D. Flooding and earthquakes had damaged the buildings, and invasions by barbarians had been reaching Olympia. In 394, the Roman Emperor Theodosius I banned all pagan festivals, but archaeological evidence indicates that games of some sort were still being held. So I guess that what the narrative of history is trying to point out here that the original Olympics fails roughly around the fall of Rome or in that neighborhood. Right. Once the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire, they were identifying the Olympics as a whole. Was it a pagan holiday or celebration or ritual of some sort? And of course, it had to go. And technically speaking, it was considered a religious event of some sort to Zeus, along with the other events that were to some of the other gods. Yeah, I guess, huh? Don't don't respect aspects of nature, but um, this is what I'm talking about, history. The Holy Roman Empire was neither holy or Roman, but that's a different tale. Well, this is what I always say. The Catholic Church is the Roman Empire in its modern form. I think they just saw a way to continue with their massive control that they had. As they were losing control with boots on the ground, they were able to do it pretty much through every other way possible. 
Yeah, you know, if you look at it logically, and I am correct in uh, attributing this to aspects of nature, um, and I don't know how how you could say it's not. Um, Zeus is Jupiter. Jupiter is a luminary in the sky. It's part of our natural environments, what it is. Um, and then the church comes along and starts skewing people away from from nature, and then giving them derisive terms so they can be made fun of, like pagan. Well, you're a pagan. That's a bad thing to be called. But if you look up what the word means, it means someone who lives in the country understands nature. It's what it means. But you can see what's going on here, basically. Well, that means that even way back when, however long ago, they were already trying to beat people down in the sense that live in the city and be cultured and all that. Living in nature is dum-dumville. You're not a good person if you are a quote-unquote pagan. Well, it does seem to be a bit of a dividing point, uh, moving away from the natural world into where we live now, the artificial world. But you see, the thing about that that's kind of odd is back in those days, you have to assume that people had to understand nature. They had to plant. They had to grow. There was not a 7-Eleven on every corner. So it's a bit of a catch-22 when you look at it. But nonetheless, we can show all day long uh, that by the time Rome got a hold of things and the spiritual concerns, um, having anything to do with the natural world was a no-no. And I'm sure even way back when, it was much easier to control people when they were in cities than on their own little farms, taking care of themselves and generally thinking for themselves. Yeah, there, there was no end to the levels of control, power, money, force, uh, ideas like you'll burn in hell if you don't do what I say, these kinds of things. Yeah, it's pretty clear. It took approximately 1,503 years for the Olympics to return. The first modern Olympics were held in Athens, Greece, in 1896. The individual responsible for bringing this about was a Frenchman named Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who presented the idea in 1894. His original idea was to unveil the modern games in 1900 in his native Paris. However, delegates from 34 countries became quite interested with the concept, and they convinced him to move the games up to 1896 and have Athens, respectfully so, serve as the first host. And so, the 1896 Summer Olympic Games were held from April 6th until April 15th. So here it is. Here's where the interesting part of the narrative begins, because anyone listening to this would think, yeah, of course, you're going to start the new games on, on, on 1900. Not only that, the narrative that we have is that two years before they actually start in 1894, two years. So he comes up with this big idea that's going to end up affecting many nations or many groups of people, and they implement it in two years. But the point is, why did they pick 1894? An hour or two will begin to show you, because it's all about the numbers, baby. Always has been. From the official Olympics website, when he announced in Paris on a winter's evening in 1892, the forthcoming reestablishment of the Olympic Games, Pierre de Coubertin was applauded. But nobody at the time imagined the scale of the project that reviving the ancient Olympic Games, appointing a committee in charge of organizing them, and creating an international movement would entail. The International Olympic Committee was created on June 23rd of 1894. The first Olympic Games of the modern era opened in Athens on April 6th, 1896. And the Olympic movement has not stopped growing ever since. And if I'm not mistaken, the IOC is the correct acronym for the International Olympic Committee. That ends up being centered in Switzerland, Masters of the Universe. And as we're going to break down in a bit... There are a lot of people involved with this whole thing that, well, you'll recognize their names. Well, then to everyone's, the, the most familiar example that people would easily understand was the Utah Games with Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was going to run for president. Goes to show you what we're talking about here. The IOC was created by Pierre de Coubertin on June 23, 1894, with Dimitrios Vikolas as its first president. As of April 2019, its membership consists of 95 active members, 44 honorary members, an honorary president, who is Jacques Roger, and two honor members, Henry Kissinger and Yusufa Nidier. The IOC is the supreme authority of the worldwide modern Olympic movement. 
So you got 95 guys controlling it, and your honor member, one of them, everyone is familiar with, Henry Kissinger. So I, I hope you understand what we're pointing at here. If not, take a moment to look up Mr. Kissinger. Um, quite a guy, to say the least. I usually just call him Mr. New World Order because he just loves saying that on camera when he gets a chance. He does, um, and he makes no bones about it. He says a lot of things on camera that, that most people will not. And, of course, he was in and around Nixon as all the 1972 Watergate nonsense went on. And as a matter of fact, in hour two, uh, the Watergate stuff is going to play into this, believe it or not, along with the movie Deep Throat. Not kidding. As I've mentioned, I had watched a 10-part series on Vietnam, and of course, Henry Kissinger was the Secretary of State during a lot of that. And if you know anything about Henry Kissinger, he is completely tied in with Bilderberg and all the things that the general conspiracy community looks into. I can only wonder, having someone like that in the White House for however many years it was, what was the Vietnam War? It seemed like it was just an excuse for the military-industrial complex to just completely milk the United States government and whatever else they were doing for I don't even know how long, probably about 20 years. And it's quite obvious that once they were done with it, they did militaristically what they should have done in the first place. And that's just bomb the living snot out of Hanoi till they came to the conference table to discuss terms. And that was that. Yeah. Yeah, dude, that's Brutal, but yeah, I think what we're looking at uh, is chess pieces moving, and he did serve under two presidents, the most controversial president being Nixon, who was removed from office, and then Gerald Ford. Um, he's been a politician, a diplomat, a geopolitical consultant. Maybe that's a little bit like saying member of Tavistock. Uh, he served as Secretary of State, and he was a national security advisor. But if anyone goes and looks this man up, you'll see that he was involved in the opening of China, China the detente, the Vietnam War, uh, the Bangladesh War. He was key and instrumental in Israeli pos uh, policy concerning Soviet Jewry, uh, the Turkish invasion of Cyprus, Latin American policy, Rhodesia, there's the Rhodes Scholar, that's what that's all based in, uh, East Timor, Cuba, it goes on and on and on. And he he openly admits, um, I don't know, is it trilateral? I forget which commissions it is. I, he's so many, trilateral or something like this. And this guy is the honor member, one of two honor members for the IOC, for the Olympic Committee. So what do you think is going on there? Right. And that's why I was pointing all this out is he was involved with all of these great big events yep. in the world uh, that are directly tied in with military industrial complex. And here he is involved with the with the Olympics as well. So I just wanted everybody to think about that for a moment, that this guy is responsible for a lot of horrible things in the world. But here he is involved with this as well. If I'm not mistaken, he won a Nobel Peace Prize that was a big deal. I think people quit their jobs and everything else because of it. Um, but then again, uh, anyone who looks into all the people who have won that and how it started uh, will understand that's just more insider baseball, too. Well, I think that's just more putting on a pretty coat and strutting around because that doesn't mean anything, at least not most of the time. Didn't Obama win one? Actually, I forget. He received a Nobel Peace Prize. Unreal. Just for being. Well, a dude, alive, breathing. <laughs> he received a Nobel Peace Prize when he was elected president just for being black, I think. I think that's literally what they gave it to him for. It's like, oh, you uh, deserved a Peace Prize because of the color of your skin and you became president, and that's a big deal. And that was a big deal to a lot of people. I'm, I'm not going to say it wasn't, but these things are just not what you think they are. That did not happen for the reasons you think it did. All right, Jason. So we're running short on time. And the truth is, we would love to have said so much more in hour one, but we just can't. I've recently had uh, two videos flagged. One of them was was reinstated when uh, when I challenged it. But uh, we're going to cover the Olympic rings and logos. But the big thing in hour two is going to show you the importance of why it didn't just begin again in 1900, why it was four years earlier. Um, it makes all the numbers line up, and we will go into the 36 games of Berlin, the 72 games of uh, Munich, hint, 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 and uh, a heck of a lot more. And by the way, we will also tie in Watergate, and believe it or not, the old pornographic movie Deep Throat. Uh, those who remember Watergate remember the key character actually got that nickname. Uh, but Jason, what would you add before we close up? 
Well, like all things, this subject has a lot more to it than, of course, seems to be on the surface. I think there's a lot more to it than just a lot of athletes getting together and competing against each other. And we're going to break down all the numerics and all the things that go into this because there's symbolism. There's everything. Just like with all these things, there's no event that's supposed to be so important worldwide that isn't going to have some greater thing to it. Just think about how much television is dedicated to it and websites and all the things in our modern time that give time to this event. So, of course, it's going to be used for the controller's purposes. Well, any city that gets tapped to host, it's it's almost, I always imagine it's like, you know, in the old old mob movies where the guy wants to be a made man and he finally gets it. And now no one can touch him. Look at look at the cities who have hosted the Olympics and, and what they get and how much bigger they become. Actually, China is a good example. Look how much China changed just to host the games. But the truth is where people with higher minds can still talk as free human beings. There's a lot to be said about this. And how can I carefully choose my words? When you look at a thing and then you can show that a thing was used as a foundation for nonsense, you've truly learned something. So I hope you will join us all in hour two when we'll get a little deeper into some of the esoteric ideas about the Olympic Games. Anyhow, Shoot the Moon, our film, is still on Vimeo On Demand. It's won three awards now. It's streamed almost every country with an internet connection. There is a shop link on Crow 777 Radio. That's not about making money. That's about getting our web address out where it can't be censored. And we hope you'll join us all over at Crow777Radio.com where there's a second hour available for members. There it is, man. Cheers.